Well, when the Hebrew prophets felt that people were not understanding their message, sometimes they would uh, resort to street theater. They would act out what uh, a visual symbol might be of the message that they wanted to get across. Uh, Jeremiah, for example, will wear a heavy oxen yoke and that will symbolize that the people of Israel because of their uh, rebellion are about to bear a yoke of punishment. Ezekiel will pack a bag and walk out into the desert out of Jerusalem and that's a, a, his way of saying this is about to happen to you. So the prophets didn't just preach messages from God, they would act them out as visual symbols of God's word. And that's what is happening on Palm Sunday. Uh, our gospel reading this year is from Luke 19, 28 to 40. And, and Jesus in this uh, story that many of us are familiar with is, is uh, performing a symbolic uh, message. And let's look at that a little bit here because the symbolism isn't always easy to pick up. Here's the setting, beginning in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So Jesus has been making his way to Jerusalem for many months now. Uh, the setting of this final scene of entry is the Mount of Olives. And Luke notes that, the gospel writers note that, Jesus, in a sense, sets it up. He's kind of the producer of this play. And he, he, he wants everyone to see at the beginning that this is the setting. And it, this is because of a prophecy from Zechariah 14, verse 4. On that day, his feet, the Messiah's feet, shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. So every devout Jew knew that the Messiah would come to the Mount of Olives. And so as Jesus, the Messiah, begins to enter into Jerusalem, he starts this uh, performative act at the Mount of Olives. And then he tells two disciples to go get him a colt. And Jesus has been walking for many days now. He is a mile away. Uh, you just walk down the Kidron Valley and up into Jerusalem. He does not need a colt. Uh, there is no logistical necessity for him to get on a, a colt at this point. He is choosing to ride in on a colt because he wants to make a statement. He's trying to teach us something. And, and Luke gives almost seven verses to the details about the cult. So there's something we need to pull from this. And again, he is acting out the fulfillment of another prophecy from Zechariah, 
in the ninth chapter. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So every devout Jew knew that when the Messiah came, he would come from the Mount of Olives and that somehow he would come riding on a colt. But what would he do when he got there? Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak to the nations His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this is a different kind of king who is coming. He's not coming on a war horse. He's coming to bring peace. He is a king of peace. Well, let's follow the story a little further in verse 32. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said, hey, why are you untying that colt? And they said, well, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. So the disciples uh, are living in a narrative that was familiar to them, that's probably not familiar to us. And one of the things you did when a new king was anointed and coming into Jerusalem was you took off your cloaks. You also waved palms, although Luke's gospel doesn't talk about that. Uh, this co- here's an example of this from uh, 2 Kings, when a man named Jehu became king. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So every line of this story is filled with prophetic symbolism that's pointing to Jesus being the messianic king, but a different kind of king. Verse 36, And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and as he was drawing near, Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Now, there was another custom in ancient Israel that when every year they would reenact the enthronement of the king and the king would ride back into Jerusalem and they would sing psalms of praise from Psalm 118. And that's exactly what the disciples are doing here. The disciples understand what's happening. They understand that the Messiah is coming. And the story concludes... And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So Jerusalem's religious leaders think that the disciples are disobeying the will of God. And this is this climax of the story where these two 
views of God, two spiritualities, two ways of being in the world just clash violently. There's so many different ways we could apply this story, but I just want us to think of one tonight. And if, if we have our picture of, a, of Jesus there coming in, as you think about that picture tonight and, and, and into the week, what, what is our Lord saying in this symbolism? He did not have to come in that way. Matter of fact, given the amount of animosity against him, he'd have been a lot smarter to sneak in to the city. So he knows exactly what he's doing. Well, what I want us to think about just, just for a second is that last verse. So Jesus now, that's the gate there that he's just ridden into. He's now in Jerusalem. He is now at the center of institutional religion. And remember, Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. Jesus loved Israel. I mean, he's the son of David, the new Moses. He has 12 disciples that model the 12 tribes. He says he's coming not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus loved Israel. He was coming to reform the people of God. He wasn't coming to blow everything up. And what we see in this story is such a powerful image of what happens when the new movement of the kingdom of God confronts institutional religion. And here's what I want you to think about. The container of institutional religion could not hold the new wine of the kingdom of God. That's one of the things I want you to take away from this story tonight. The container of institutional religion could not hold the new wine of the kingdom of God. Jesus said that he came to bring new wine. Matthew 9, 17. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. The old container could not hold the new wine of the kingdom. Well, what might that mean for us today? Uh, clearly, Jesus is not coming to die on the cross again. Yet the church believes that Jesus is always reforming his church. Uh, when Nazism took over the church in Germany, a Swiss theologian uh, very bravely uh, wrote a document called the Barman Declaration with some other theologians. His name was Karl Barth. And he was appalled at how the evangelical church came under the cultural captivity of Nazism. And you would see uh, images of both the cross 
and the swastika uh, at the same time. People would actually praise Hitler and praise Jesus with images on their shirts at the same time. Can you imagine people would do something like that? Well, Bart went back to Augustine and he took a phrase that translated as roughly a reformed church is always reforming itself. A reformed church is always reforming itself. The church is always in danger of becoming a dead institution bound up in legalism and devoid of the spirit. And so it always needs to be reforming itself. And, and we live in a very delicate tension as Christians. We talk a lot about this. That Christian life is a life of tension and balance. On the one hand, we are conservative in the sense that we value the past. We hold firmly to our teaching and traditions. We not, try not to wed ourselves to the spirit of the age lest we become a widow in the next one. We celebrate and honor our history. At the same time, we are progressive in the sense that we are always open to being reformed by Jesus, that we are always open to the fresh work of the spirit. We are always trying to receive the new wine. And so in one way, this is a one-time event, of course, that will never be repeated. But in another way, it's a picture of what happens in our own hearts on a regular basis and in our church on a regular basis where Jesus rides in in a way that we do not expect and we have defense mechanisms set up that say we didn't, we didn't expect you to come like that and there's a clash so I think we could apply this a couple different ways you could, you could think of this metaphorically as your own heart as if Jerusalem were your own heart and this Holy Week, and I really do encourage you to, to go through these this week, Jesus wants to ride into your heart to reign, but there are probably some areas of your interior world that will resist that. Jesus may want you to look at Scripture in a new way, a way you've not been comfortable with before. He may call you to live out your faith in a different way. He may challenge some of the ways you are protecting yourself. Will you allow him to ride into the Jerusalem of your heart and have his way with you? Or like the Pharisees will we say, it's not how I thought you'd come. I did not expect at 60 to be starting again, Lord. We had figured this out, hadn't we? 
Now, the other way we might think of it is even as a, as a community here. And I, I, I don't want to butcher this metaphor or push it way too far, but we are in a new season, a time of transition where you know, a season is ending and a season is beginning and we're asking for new wine. We're asking for new leadership. We're praying for a new season. And the hour before I came in here two weeks ago and told you I was leaving, I was in the graveyard, and that was the discussion that the Lord and I had. And as clear as I've ever heard anything was, this is a time for new life. Will we have a container that is flexible and receptive and malleable to receive whatever new life Jesus wants to bring. However he wants to bring it, even if perhaps it looks differently than what we thought it might look like. I don't know what that means. But are we a community that can receive the new wine of the kingdom? I believe that we are. Let's pray for that as we enter Holy Week now. Lord, a young young friend shared an old hymn today What can be done with an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. She knew it as an old hymn. I knew it as an old Keith Green song. I thought he wrote it. I'm very depressed about that. But what a beautiful, beautiful prayer for us as we start Holy Week. What can be done with an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. Lord, I I know that that is what we want as a people. We want to be containers that can receive whatever new you want to do amidst us. And may this week You soften us up with oil and wine. Amen.